So our Christmas series is just called Here is Our King. And really the question I'm going to be asking throughout the series uh, and trying to answer is, is the Christmas story just a great story? Uh, I mean, is it a story that's just, I don't know, meant to encourage us, inspire us, compel us to be generous uh, in the month of December? Uh, or is the Christmas story, in fact, uh, part of a, a much larger, greater story being told? Because if we just say Christmas is just, it's a great story, and it is meant to encourage, bless, inspire people towards generosity, then we're just going to think about it when December comes around. Uh, but what I'm hoping we'll see today, and what I'm hoping we'll see just throughout this month, is the Christmas story, it's a big story, it's a great story, it's a phenomenal story, but it's part of a much larger story being told. And if we understand the greater story being told, not only are we going to be able to make sense of the Christmas story and how this fits into the big picture, but we'll actually be able to start to make sense of our story. Um, One of the things I'm going to be, you're going to hear me say it a ton, it might drive you nuts, I'm going to be talking a lot about story uh, and challenging you, encouraging you to be thinking about your story. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said it well when he said this, I had always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. I'd always felt life first as a story. And if there is a storyteller, there, if there is a story, there is a storyteller. So if your life is a story, uh, then to not know the teller of the story, the storyteller, as it were, your life is going to be confusing might even be just lead you to despair because you won't know what story's being told. And consequently, you'll just try to create or come up with your own story. Uh, and when we do that, uh, that story gets confusing. It gets complex. It gets difficult. Um, and like I mentioned, it can lead to great despair. Um, so have you ever wondered things like, and I think all of us would say yes, but who am I? You ever wonder that question? Who am I? Have you ever run the question of, why am I here? Why do I exist? What's the meaning? What's the point of life? Uh, if there is a God, how do I know God? How do I relate with God? What does God actually want from me? I think these are, I hope, these are questions that all of us, at least at some point, have asked before uh, of what is the point of all of this. And I'm going to guess that there's got to be a handful of you here today that are actually in that place right now where you're asking, what on earth is happening in my story? What is the meaning of this? What is the point of all of this? Uh, And really wrestling with things like purpose and significance and value and worth. Great questions, but where will you find answers to those great questions? And what I'm going to be talking about today and just throughout this month is we find answers to those questions in the stories. Um, in the stories, because stories shed light on our lives. Uh, John Elridge uh, wrote a great book called Epic and talked about the story of God and the story of our lives, said this, life does not come to us like a math problem. It comes to us the way that a story does, scene by scene. Life unfolds like a drama. Each day has a beginning and an end, and there are all sorts of characters, all sorts of settings. Sometimes it seems like a tragedy. And sometimes, like a comedy, most of it feels like a soap opera. And I liked how he just summarized, uh, life is like a story. Every day has a beginning, every day has an end. And in between beginning and end, you will meet so many different people. 
And there is a story that is unfolding every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year. But how do we make sense of the story that is the story of our life? Uh, Sam Ganji, <clears throat> he's a little guy, <clears throat> he's a hobbit, and uh, I'm a little bit late to the game in this one, but I didn't actually watch Lord of the Rings until uh, last Christmas. Um, I, don't, I just had my head in a hole, apparently, but I didn't read the books, I didn't watch the films, and uh, after Kyla, my wife had finished reading uh, The Lord of the Rings, all three of them, or just the whole trilogy, and then read The Hobbit, I was like, all right, well, now that my kids have done this, I should probably know what they're being taught. Um, so instead of reading the books, I was like, well, the movies are already out. So, uh, so I went to see The Hobbit, and then at Christmas time, uh, we watched uh, The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, The Fellowship, The Towers, and then The One with the King. Uh, and it was a fun, if you've ever seen the films, they're phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal story being told with amazing characters, amazing epic battles, uh, inspiring, compelling. Um, but Sam Ganji, who's one of the hobbits, he says this at the very end of the film, uh, the last one, The Return of the King. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. And this is coming from one little hobbit named Sam Ganji, Sam Wise Ganji, to uh, his other friend Frodo. And He's considering all that they have seen in the story that has unfolded before them. All the places of beauty like Rivendell and all the battles, epic battles that they fought, all the moments where they didn't know if they'd live or die. He comes to the end when they're climbing up uh, the mountain, whatever that's called. And Samwise Ganji, I've only seen it once, so cut me some slack. He says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. He assumes that there is a story that there is something larger going on, that there is something larger going on. And I wonder, have you ever wondered that yourself? Is there something greater actually happening? As you've just considered your story, have you ever hit, been hit with that, that thought that, that Samwise Ganji said? Maybe this is just part, or, part of some greater, grander story that's being told. Well, I wanted to ask you the question then, what is your story? How would you articulate your story? If someone asked you, and if you hang out with me long enough, I'll ask you, what is your story? Where do you even begin to answer that question? What details do you put in? What moments of your life, meaning your story, have shaped you, have compelled you, have inspired you, have caused you to get derailed or detoured? How would you answer the question of what is your story? What would be the beginning of where you would actually start? Uh, it's safe to say that all of us would want our story to be powerful. I, I mean, I don't think anyone here would be like, yeah, I just want to have a lame story. Just give me the most boring story. I want that to be my story. I think most people would actually say, I want to have a powerful story. I want to have a story that compels, that inspires but I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, most of our stories don't make much sense to us. If you just consider your story and what's happening in the midst of your story, most of us would just have to shake our heads and say, I can't even explain or articulate what's happening in my life right now. Uh, and I wonder if we get lost, as it were, in our story because the plot is just lacking. 
And much of our story is just defined by the busyness of our day. Much of our story is just defined by things that just don't really matter too much. And I wonder if that's the case because the plot, there's not much of a plot going on in our life. And I like how this author, William Kilpatrick, said, the same impulses that make us want our books to have a plot make us want our lives to have a plot. We need to feel that we are getting somewhere, making progress. There is something in us that is not satisfied with a merely psychological explanation of our lives. The central question for us should not be what personality dynamics explain my behavior, but rather, what sort of story am I in? And I loved how he just phrased that. What kind of story am I in right now? Do you know what kind of story you are in right now? And for me, personally, my conviction is there's only one story that's big enough to adequately answer my questions about life. There's only one story that's big enough to answer the questions, at least in my mind, adequately about meaning and purpose and significance and value and worth. There's only one story that's big enough to say that's a compelling story. That's an inspiring, that's a moving, that's a powerful story. And I want my life to be wrapped up in that story. Tim Kellner's book, his commentary on uh, the Gospel of Mark said this, the whole story of the world, and I want you to catch this, this is a powerful thing he said, the whole story of the world and how we fit into it is most clearly understood through a careful, direct look at the story of Jesus, how beautiful, beautifully his life makes sense of ours. So in essence, what Tim Keller is saying is, if you want to make sense of your life, if you want your story to make sense, then you've got to consider who Jesus is. That the story of Jesus is the most compelling, inspiring story. Uh, and I like, again, how he said it. It's, you've got to consider the whole story. And so what we're going to do over these next uh, few weeks is take a look at the story of Christmas and ask the question of how does it actually fit into the bigger story being told. And my prayer, my hope, is that if someone were to ask you on December 25th, what is your story, uh, you would have a compelling story to tell. Not because of some adventure you took over these next 24 days, uh, but because you're starting to understand your life in the context of a greater story that's unfolding. And much like Samwise Ganji when he said, wow, we must be part of a greater tale being told that you would be able to say that with confidence and conviction as well. So I think a good starting point uh, then for this morning is to ask a great question, uh, ask this question of, where are you right now? If life is a story, and I believe it is, then where are you right now in the midst of your story? Where are you in the midst of your story right now? Um, you ever go to a mall, and you probably will at some point uh, in the month of December, and you're not familiar with the mall, like maybe you've been there once, maybe you've never been there, and you have the general idea of what you're looking for, what you need to purchase, what you need to buy, uh, but this mall is overwhelming. It's big. You have no idea uh, you know, how to get there. The first thing generally that you do as a good idea would be go to that big map, uh, usually located by the doors of the Welcome Center, uh, and you look on the map and it's got a schematic of all of the stores. But you're not looking for the schematic of all the stores. You're looking for what? You're looking for that big circle, that red dot, that red star that says, you are here. 
Because if you don't know where you are, then you're going to have a hard time getting anywhere. If you don't have a clear idea of this is my starting point. And so what I'm asking you in this question of where are you right now, if you were to put a big red star that says I'm here, where is here? Where is here right now? Some of you might just be like, you know what? I'm pretty ticked off at God. I'm pretty frustrated with how my story has unfolded. I don't like my story anymore. I'm really confused about God. I I thought I knew him, but I really don't know him. Your red dot, meaning I'm here, might be I'm just discontent, lack of peace, filled with anxiety, worry, no joy. Where are you right now? Because if you don't know, it's gonna have, you'll have a hard time moving forward in the story. So I wanted you to identify that. Now, as you're thinking about the where you are, and I'd encourage you to write that down, uh, I'll put another challenging question on top of that. How did you get there? How did you get to the point where if that red dot, red star, that circle marks I'm here, how did you land here? Because it wasn't just random, it wasn't by accident that you landed where you are. So for me, a challenging question is, well, how did I get to this place? How did I get to this place where I wanted to be over there, but I just found myself over here? And over here is just marked by confusion, disappointment, anger, bitterness. You fill in the adjectives. So where are you and how did you get there? Because again, my heart for me and all of us this month of December is that we move forward into a greater story that's being told. That your story would be wrapped up in not just the Christmas story that you think about once a year, but your story would be wrapped up in the bigger story that's known as the story of God. Um, we got to go back to the beginning. And every great story always starts at the beginning. And if you're going to make sense of your story, meaning your life, then you've got to start with, well, where does the story actually begin? I, I, I kind of figured out where I am, where that red dot is, so to speak, a red star is, and I'm kind of wrestling with how I actually got here. Again, if you're going to move forward, then I really want to wrestle this morning with just the question of, uh, well, I want to understand the beginning of the story in hopes that it's going to start to shed some light on where I am and where I'm going moving forward. So just in the time that we have left, uh, if you have a Bible, we're going all the way back to the beginning, and that would be in the book of Genesis. Uh, So if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 1. And this is Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we'll keep it simple. We're just going to read verse 1, and we're only going to read the first four words in verse 1, because the first four words say everything about the story. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. If we'd understand our story, mean our life, we must first understand that the story we are in, it's not about us. It's about God. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking about your story, if when you think about your story, you're thinking about you, you're missing the point. Because the story from Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. The story is about God. And Rick Warren, in his book, Purpose Driven Life, I like how he said it. He said, you were made for God. I wanted you to catch that. You were made for God, not vice versa. And life is about letting God use you for his purpose, for his story. Allowing God 
for you to know God and allowing God to, to use you for his story, for his purpose, not you using him for your own purpose. See, a lot of people's story, it starts with me, and then I want to pepper a little bit of God into my story. When I need God, I'm going to grab a little bit of God. And if that's how the storyline goes for you, if that's the plot line, it's a small story, it will be a confusing story, and it will ultimately be a story that you get to a certain point, you're like, how did I get here? So what I wanted you to catch from the beginning, in the beginning, God, I am not the main character, God is. And what's compelling about this is God doesn't need me to believe in God to actually for God to continue to uh, exist. Even if your mentality, your heart says, I don't even believe in God, that doesn't change the reality that God still exists. And he is the author, the creator. He is at the beginning of the story. He is the main character of the story. So here's a question for you, and write down an answer to this. What or who or what stands at the beginning of your story? Again, if the question was, what is your story? Who or what stands at the beginning of your story? Because if the beginning of your story is not God, then you're going to begin to experience uh, what I just call plot drift. Because God has a plot for you. He has a purpose for you. And if he is not at the beginning of our story, then we will get further and further and further and further away from the plot that God has for us. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Read on in the story in Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis 1, if you're familiar with it, talks about the creation story of how each day God created something different. I'm going to jump to day 6 because that's where you and I enter the story. It says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then jump down to day 6 in verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything. This is verse 31. God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Did you catch that? In the beginning was God. On the sixth day, God created you and me in his image. He shaped us, he created us, he fashioned, he formed us in his image. Meaning, if you're a human, which all of you are, you bear the very image of your creator on your life. And if you read the the creation narrative, day one through day five, God looked at all he created and said it was good. But on day six, God looked at humanity. He looked at Adam and Eve, and he declared something, and he said, it is very good. I think for many, a huge part of your story has been your search for someone or something to say to you something that God has already said. Very good. God has already looked at you, one who's made in his image, and he's already declared you very good. But so many of our stories are wrapped up in going to other people, other things, in hopes that we will hear those words from them, that affirmation. That they will look at you, your personhood, they will look at your performance, and they will declare something of you that God has already spoken to you. Very good. As I've been thinking about this one of 
gosh, how much would my story be so different if I just believed that when God looked at me, when he looked at you and declared it to be very good, how different my story would be? How many relationships would not end broken because I didn't get the affirmation I wanted from them, so I moved on? And then I consider how much of my life has been shaped by what others have said, what others have spoken. You're stupid. You're worthless. You're no good. And how much those words spoken to me have actually shaped such an, a huge aspect of my story. Again, as I wrestle with this, I ask myself this question, what has caused me to stop hearing the voice that has already declared very good? Like, what happened in my story where I went searching for what I needed and wanted more than anything from something or someone else other than what God has already declared? Uh, Justin Buzzard wrote a great book, uh, actually entitled The Big Story, and it said this, if you don't find your identity in what God says, I want you to hear this, if you don't find your identity in what God says, meaning what God has already declared of you, in His words you will be forced to build it upon uh, what other people say about you. If you don't find your identity in what God says, in his words, you will be forced to build it upon what other people say about you, and you will try to prove that you're very good. And I want you to know, if that's part of your story, you're trying to prove to yourself, to others around you, that you are very good, you've already got plot drift. Because in the beginning was God. And he is the main character, he is the author, he is the storyteller. And he created you in his image and declared that you are very good. And if we go looking for that affirmation from anything other than the affirmation we've already received from God, again, we will experience plot drift. So let me ask this question. Are there things that you're currently allowing into your story that are just not true? That are just not true? And I want to make it as simple and as practical as I can. So when we think or when we say things of ourselves, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I'm worthless, I'm no good, you're causing plot drift. You're allowing things to shape you that are just not true of who you are and what God has declared of you. So again, I would just ask, are there things that you are allowing into your story that are just not true? true. Lies you're choosing to believe about God, lies you're choosing to believe about yourself. So not only did God declare those he created very good, uh, one of the amazing things that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is God's the main character. God created you and me in his image, declared us to be very good, and then we see that God created us to have perfect relationship with him, unhindered relationship with him, And consequently, when we have a perfect relationship with God, we have perfect relationship with those around us. In the beginning, in the story that God was writing, that's the story that God wrote. Created to know God in the image of God, to have perfect relationship with one another. In Genesis 2, verse 25, it says this, Now the man and his wife, that would be Adam and Eve, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And by the way, this isn't just between Adam and Eve. They were, and we're not talking, clearly we're talking, there's some physical nakedness, but we're talking about a full picture nakedness, spiritual, emotional, relational. 
nakedness and that they were like that before one another and they were like that before God. And verse 25 says, but they felt no shame. Perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had together uh, because they had a perfect relationship with God. Can you imagine what it would be like to have as part of your story? I don't know shame. I don't know condemnation. I don't know insecurity. I don't know fear. Can you imagine if that was part of your story? To be able to say and declare in all honesty, I've never felt those things. I've never felt shame and guilt and fear and insecurity. Those things are foreign to me in my story. Well, I don't think anyone could could say that, obviously. So how much of your story is actually being driven by the shame and the guilt and the condemnation and the fear that you feel? Because in the beginning, there's God, created you in his image, declared you to be very good, and created us to have perfect fellowship with him where we wouldn't feel insecurity, fear, shame, and guilt, and condemnation. How have things like guilt, condemnation, shame, and security How have they, or maybe better said, how are they shaping your story right now? Because I want you to know if a lot of your story is just, you're riddled with it. The guilt, condemnation, all of it, the fear, insecurity. If that's driving your story, I want you to know we've got plot drift going on again. Because that's not the story that God has for you. That's not the story that God wants you to be living in and experiencing. Uh, Because I've I can tell you what, condemnation is one of the most paralyzing feelings. Insecurity, it will drive you to do things you just wish you never did. And these are all part of our story, that part of our story, but it's not the story that God has for us. So here's what I learned just by Genesis, looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, In the beginning, there's God. He created us uh, for us to know him, to walk with him created us in his image, declared us to be very good. And in the beginning, there was no shame. Now, what's really, I think, hard about this story is it only lasted two chapters. I don't know how many days, I don't know how many weeks or if it was months or longer, but we see in Genesis 2, they had, it was perfect unity, perfect fellowship. They were naked and just felt no shame. But as we turn the page in Genesis chapter 3 and we look, uh, man took the story from God and said, we want to start writing our own story. And the world has never been the same when those that God created to, to know him, to experience his love, the world has never, ever been the same. You ever wonder if you watch a movie or read a book, how every story seems to be very similar Things once were good, then something awful happened. Now a great battle must be fought or a journey must be taken. And then at just the right moment, a hero comes in, sets things right, and life is found again. Like almost every movie has that same plot line. You ever wonder why? Where does that come from? It's because we're borrowing the story from the story of God. Because everything was right, but then something went terribly wrong. And what we're going to look at here just briefly is what scripture just would refer to, uh, what we refer to as just the great rebellion. The fall of humanity, the fall of man. Uh, If you've ever wondered, like, why is this world the way it is? 
Like, why is the, the world just filled with so much abuse and neglect and evil? Like, why is it like that? Well, we find our answer in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, again, I've already quoted G.K. Chesterton, but he was once asked to write an essay for the London Times. And uh, the London Times wanted to do a piece on what's wrong with the world. And so they sent out uh, that question to a bunch of different authors. Um, and uh, everyone submitted their answers, and it was long answers, long essays. But G.K. Chesterton, in response to what is wrong with the world, sent the London Times a two-word essay, and his essay was simply this, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. You want to know why there's just so much evil, so much wickedness, so much hurt, so much brokenness? It's because of me. I started writing my own story, and as I kept myself as the main character of the story, things went awry from there. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. It says this, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Uh, What we're referring to here is Satan, Lucifer, the devil, uh, the great red dragon. So the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And I want you to kind of picture, put yourself in this conversation that's taking place. Did God really say... You must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. Verse 2, of course we may eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. Verse 5, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. One bite and brokenness enters the world. Verse 7, at that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. I can't imagine how overwhelming that must have felt for them. Never have ever experienced the shame and the condemnation that they felt. Like many of us probably can't remember the days like when you were one, two, three, and you're just running around naked, just not caring about anything because you're like, I'm naked and I'm three. It's the greatest thing in the world. But then something happens when you're like four and five and you're like, I should not do this. I need to cover up and Like, we don't remember what it felt like not to experience any shame. And I can't even imagine what it must have been like in verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. If you've ever wondered what happened to the world and why there's so much brokenness and pain and suffering and evil... We can just go back to Genesis chapter 3, known as the fall of man or the great rebellion. Now, obviously, a a lot can be said about these few verses, uh, but really, uh, and this is going to seem, I don't know, maybe heavy or intense, uh, but the one thing I really wanted to drive home uh, of what happened in Genesis 3 uh, and what we're supposed to do with it uh, is simply this. I encourage you to write this down. 
We have an enemy. His name is Satan, the devil, Lucifer, the great dragon. It's amazing to me that we live in a culture that loves movies about Satan and demons and demon killers. And uh, if you just look back over the past few years of how many millions of dollars have been spent consuming films and books about vampires and um, demons and, and Satan himself and Lucifer. Uh, it's amazing how we are so attracted to and so drawn to this as way of entertainment, but then we completely neglect the reality that there is someone who is called Satan. He is the enemy of God, and his one mission is to make war against those that God has created, and that would be you. That would be me. So what we watched often as entertainment is the very thing that is derailing many of the stories that God has intended for us, and we don't even pay attention to it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this, One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind the death and disease and sin. Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and then went wrong. Christianity agrees this world is at war. It happened in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, those created by God, were attacked. They were deceived. They were tempted by one who also was created by God, but wanted to be God, wanted to ascend to be God. And God said, there's only one God, and cast him down. And his whole mission was to destroy those that God has made. Now, I know that might sound crazy. That might sound weird to some. But if you live and act unaware of the reality that there is a spiritual power Name Satan, name the devil, name Lucifer. Much of your story will be derailed because you live with your eyes closed rather than with your eyes open to the war that we're in. Scripture says this, stay alert in 1 Peter. Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Like, honestly, if, if we just play out that metaphor... If there was a lion that walked into this room, how many of you would sit in your chairs and be like, well, that is a cute kitty? I think most of us would run out as quickly as we possibly can. And scripture tells us that there is a great enemy and he wants to destroy our stories. He wants to destroy our life with God, consequently the lives that we lead. Uh, here's what the enemy Satan did to Adam and Eve. I'd say this, he got them to question what God says. Did God really say that you're not supposed to do this? And planted that seed of doubt. Did God really say that you shouldn't do this? And anytime we pretend that we don't know what God says, what God wants, we're going to pursue the path and go down a path that God doesn't want for us. See, Scripture makes clear what God wants for us. And anytime we begin acting and living in our story like, well, I don't really know if God wants me to do this, uh, say this, go here, be part of that. Anytime we begin questioning the Word of God and what God has said, uh, that's, that's the enemy doing that. 
getting to deceive us, getting us to question, and that's the first thing he did with Adam and Eve. Second thing he did is he gets us to question the consequences. You're not going to die. I mean, come on, God is good. God's loving, right? He loves you guys. He said you're very good. God's clearly not going to do what he said he's going to do. You're not going to die if you do this. Come on, we're talking about some fruit. And he got them to question the consequences of what God had clearly laid out. And any time we're shaky on the consequences, we'll always give in to momentary pleasure. Because momentary pleasure feels so much better than sitting with the consequences of, if I continue down this path, I will ruin my life. I will ruin my marriage. And I will ruin relationships around me. If we're not clear on consequences, we'll just go for momentary stuff. And that's what they did. And it said in Scripture... It began to look good. The very thing that she was being tempted with, that he was being tempted with, it began to look good because they forgot about the consequences. Do you think in that moment, if they just would have stopped and said, you know what? If we do this, it's going to ruin everything. Everything that is beautiful. Do you think they would have still made that decision? I, I, I don't know, but... What I do know is when I act as if I don't know the consequences of sin, of rebellion, of, of doing what I want in my story rather than what God wants in his story, um, if I forget the consequences, I'll choose what's easiest and most pleasurable at the moment. And the third thing that uh, Satan, the enemy, did is he actually just lied about God. And he planted that seed of, in Eve's heart of God's holding out on you because he knows If you eat this, you're going to be like him. You're going to have knowledge of good and you're going to have knowledge of evil. And so he lied about God and he got planted that seed of God's totally holding out on you. And if we're not convinced again of what God has said and we begin to think that God's holding out on us, then we will begin to grab for things that God has not given us. How many times have you done that in your life? You began to take and grab things that you know that God doesn't want for you. But you did it because you started believing things about God that are just not true. Like he's holding out on you. I see this happen a lot in relationships. You believe that God's holding out on you in a certain relationship. And so you grab a relationship that you know God just doesn't want for you. And then you begin to experience the consequences as you drift further and further and further and further away from God's story for you. Again, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis went on to say, What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. I want you to catch that. Invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. I don't trust the storyteller. So I'm going to try to create my own story. And C.S. Lewis and others, great thinkers like him, Blaise Pascal, have said similar things. We search for happiness and we search for joy outside of God. 
thinking that somehow being with God, knowing God, walking with God, being obedient to God is somehow going to be a damper on our life. It's somehow not going to bring us joy, fulfillment, content, contentment, peace. And so we go searching for those things outside of actually knowing God, walking with God, and enjoying God. So a question would be, why do we believe that we will find true happiness, true joy, true contentment outside of God, outside of doing what God wants us to do? There could be many answers to that question, but I'd say this, there's a great enemy whose aim is to deceive you into thinking that life with God is not the life that you actually want, that you will find joy and peace outside of knowing him side of walking with him faithfully and being obedient to him. Now, if I stopped here, which I'm going to stop in a minute or so, but if the story stopped here and we just had the great rebellion, because the storyteller could have said, you know what? The consequences are death. That's it. Adam, Eve, you're gone. Humanity, no more. He would have been justified in doing that. But what I love about our great rebellion, it's met with a great promise of, of God, from God to us. So when we sinned, when we rebelled, uh, it was met with an incredible promise. This is a Genesis chapter 3. Uh, their fig leaves are now on them. And it says this in verse 8, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. That's what happens. When you start writing your own story and living in your own story, when you hear God coming, you're like, I got to hide. I got to hide. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? First recorded question that we have from God to us, where are you? I heard you, and Adam replies, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Second question that God asks man, who told you that you were naked? Because I didn't. I told you, you're very good. Where are you? And who told you? Because if you would have just stayed in my story and not tried to create your own story, not tried to find joy and happiness outside of what I had for you, you would have lived naked and never felt any shame. Walking in the garden, so I hid, and I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And then the story goes on, and a few verses later, he dresses Adam and walks through the consequences of his choice. Then he looks at Eve and addresses the consequences of what she did. And then God looks at the enemy, looked at Satan, looked at the serpent, and he says this in verse 15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He... This is the personal pronoun, he. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God met their sin, their rebellion with a promise. And the promise from God uh, that the story would not end in Genesis 3, but the story would unfold until we get to the Christmas story, when we finally meet the he. Who would be the one that would be the serpent crusher? Who would be the one that would come and destroy and defeat for all time? the one that just deceived humanity. In this story, who would be the one that would come? And for thousands of years, the people of God waited. On Genesis 3.15, he will come. 
I will send one who will destroy the works and the effects of the serpent of the enemy of this great rebellion. And over these next few weeks, we're going to walk through more of the story of what that waiting looked like and all that the people of God learned while they waited. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we get a glimpse of the Christmas message because the message of Christmas is that God actually, the storyteller entered his own story, that he would send himself to destroy the enemy for eternity, that humanity would never again be deceived as we were. And I love that the Christmas story is the fulfillment of a promise that was given back in Genesis 3.15, but it's so much more than just the fulfillment of that promise. It's an explanation of what God did for us in 1 Peter, uh, Peter, the apostle Peter, the one who just denied even knowing Jesus. He said this, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. That's probably one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. The idea that Jesus came to defeat the work of the enemy forever, for eternity. And Jesus came to bring me safely home to God. So that I would live in the story of God for eternity. Because outside of Jesus coming, God entering into his story, I would be left to drift along in my story. Confused, hopeless, despair. But Jesus, the Christmas story, is a fulfillment of that, of that promise and so much more. I asked you about 40 minutes ago, where are you? And I revisit that question one more time. Where are you? What is your story right now? Where are you? Because I wanted you to know as we begin Here is Our King, this Christmas series, God has an incredible story for you. And if you continue to make your story about you, you'll plot drift. You'll miss it. I just want you to know God has an incredible, incredible story for you. That he wants you to be part of his story, to live out his purposes and his plans where his purposes and his plan do not include a lot of what our story entails. Plot drift, condemnation, worry, fear, anxiety, guilt, insecurity. God has a greater story for you. 